Uh, if you'll join me in a reading of Philippians 2, 19 through 30. Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I'll be reading from the New American Standard, but please read through your own. Verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. I'm sure Brandon will do a better job on that name. Uh, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because he, you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice. And I may be less concerned about you. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. You may be seated. Yeah, so as we, as we pass those out, just a reminder, we are, uh, as you heard in Philippians this morning, we are actually halfway through as of today. So we have made it halfway through Paul's glorious letter to the Philippians. As I was painting some cabinets in my garage last night uh, for the umpteenth night in a row, um, I popped in. I recently discovered an app called the the Dwell app, and I was listening. Uh, it's an audio Bible, and it has a few different voices uh, that are that can read. It's got a, a British guy, a British lady, because the British language, uh, for whatever reason, although it's the same language we speak, is much more beautiful to listen to. Um, but my favorite one is uh, his name is Felix, and he's actually a a Kenyan. And uh, last night, as I painted cabinets in my garage, I listened to Felix read uh, Philippians all four chapters um, and was just moved afresh. I've been studying it and uh, kind of parsing it and uh, digging into it this week, but to uh, to hear Felix read it to me uh, with a uh, piano and cello playing in the, the background uh, was, uh, was it just stirred my affections afresh to Philippians. And so I'm excited to, to finish up chapter 2 with you this morning, and I would commend to you as well uh, to download the uh, the Dwell app and listen to Felix list, uh, read Philippians for you this afternoon if you've got nothing else to do. Um, so with that said, let's pray and, uh, and see what God has to say to us this morning uh, through Philippians. Father, thank you so much for uh, this letter. Lord, as we reflect on what we've seen so far and what you've had to, to say to us, uh, we just we crave lives that uh, are ready, Lord, for, uh, for death because they know that you are gain. Father, we pray that you will continue to keep us uh, doing all things without grumbling or disputing. We pray most of all that we would see King Jesus, Lord, that we would see the one who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the one who made himself nothing in order that he might be exalted. Um, and Lord, this morning we pray that you will help us through these two servants, Timothy and Epaphroditus, Father, that we would see clearly a, a realistic portrait of a Christ-centered life. Father, we pray that as we leave this place that we would look um, more like Jesus, that our hearts would um, love Jesus more, and most of all, Father, that he would receive all the glory from our time together from our lives as we leave. So it's, all, it's, in the, it's in your name that we pray these things, Heavenly Father. Amen. When 
God began to call me to ministry uh, many moons ago, about 10 years ago now. Um, I, I did not understand what was going on. Uh, my main response to God's call on my life to gospel ministry was one of confusion at first. I, uh, I looked and through probably most of my own cynicism and perspective, but also because I had been a part of half a dozen or maybe eight churches in the Deep South, my main picture of a pastor um, was more uh, used car salesman than uh, a portrait of, of courage or, or fidelity. I had good pastors, and I don't mean to disparage them, but uh, they, they tended to me to come off many times as um, somewhat artificial, and it was, just, it was hard for me to picture myself in that mold and being that guy. Um, I knew I loved Jesus. I knew I wanted to obey him, and so I told him, yeah, I'll do it, but I don't really see how that's going to work. And uh, as I sat across the table, many of you have heard uh, this story as, as part of my testimony before, but as I sat across the table from um, Pastor Al, I began to see more clearly how God's call to the ministry could actually take place in my life and was more realistic than I'd given it credit. Uh, as I talked with Al, I began to see this combination of courage and humility, this combination of directness and gentleness, um, this combination of, quite frankly, a, a seemingly unremarkable man who uh, the Lord had used in remarkable ways in his ministry. Um, my favorite Al story is, he, he shared this with me one time, as he often did, he would just share things that were both provocative, funny, and then extremely helpful in terms of thinking through how you administer to people. He shared that one time in the late 80s as he was preaching, uh, a, a lady in his church who was a, an upstanding member of the church, one of his, he, whom he called his favorite church members. She was a passionate older widow. And uh, as he was preaching in the middle of his sermon, he looked up and, and she had stood up. And he was unsure what was going on, and she began to speak in tongues in the middle of his sermon, interrupted uh, the, the preaching time to uh, to begin speaking in tongues. And he said, I, I waited for her to finish, and I'm thinking, man, I don't know what I would do. I, would, I, I don't think I'd call security on an older lady for speaking in tongues. That doesn't seem like the right course of action, but, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, what's he going to do? And uh, he shared with me that he said he waited for her to... Uh, to conclude and looked out upon the congregation and said, 1 Corinthians 14.27 says that someone must interpret if someone were to speak in tongues. Do we have an interpretation? He said, I waited about five seconds in a silence. And I said, okay, 1 Corinthians 14.28 says that without an interpretation, you are called to speak to yourself and to God. So would you please have a seat? And he said she sat down and he continued and finished his sermon. And I thought, man... That would take some guts. Um, <laughs> tell an older lady to sit down. But he said she was she was very gracious. He said she never agreed with me. She told me I shouldn't have done that. But I told her to read First Corinthians and get back with me, and she never did. So, um, but that was that was Brother Al for you. He was just he was a, a direct and gentle and humble man who um, who could command um, a room. But more than that, I reflected Jesus in many ways. And so I saw in him a man, a simple. I saw in him a, a, a man who was a simple picture of of a gospel ministry. Um, he taught the Bible and he made disciples. And in his ministry, I saw a reflection of Jesus. And so as we reach this passage in Philippians 2 today, it's, if, if you're reading the book, it seems like it's a little bit out of place. It's, it's, a, it's a, a missionary account. Paul's giving this testimony, which these usually happen at the end of Paul's letters. Normally, if he's going to give an account of uh, the jobs that he's assigning people and why he's sending who he's sending, those are coming at the end and kind of his last tally of information. And yet it's kind of squished in between here, it feels like, in Philippians 2. I don't think Paul lost his, his train of thought. I don't think he's forgot where he was and thought he was reaching the end and then decided to keep going. I think this is intentional. Um, and just, just to give you a recap so you can see how it fits in. So two weeks ago, if you remember, we were talking about Jesus' life and death as the ultimate example of humility. And then last week, we got Paul's command to emulate humility and the power of the Spirit. And now this week, what Paul's giving us is two practical, realistic examples of men who are cultivating this type of gospel-centered humility, this other's focus, this type of courage, and this, this great life that he's been expounding, primarily through the life and sacrifice of Jesus. But I think Paul realizes that what's coming up in our minds likely is, well, yeah, but I mean, I'm not Jesus. I know I'm supposed to be like him, but he didn't have any 
sin. Right? He was tempted in every way as I was, but he didn't know what it was like to stumble. Paul, I mean, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be like Jesus, but you just and you just told me to be humble, but man, that, that whole others focus thing is seems pretty unrealistic, right? That whole others focus and that courage, willing to risk your life. I mean, you're Paul, right? So you got Jesus, you got Paul. But what about the rest of us? What about the people in the pews who aren't Jesus and Paul? These, you know, first of all, the Son of God and then the great apostle. I think Paul's giving us some some pictures of regular, everyday men who he points to and says, they follow me as I follow Christ. Now you follow them. Paul is giving us a realistic portrait of the Christ-centered life. One that multiplies others-focused disciples with a missional courage. So Jesus is the true servant, but he is gracious to give faithful men and women to his church. So yes, Jesus is the true and perfect example. No one's going to live up to the standard of Jesus. And yet, in his grace, he always provides his church with faithful men and women that we can point to and say, follow them, look at them, be like them, honor them. No matter how messy the church gets, God is always gracious to give those kind of servants leaders. So let's look together um, on what these servant leaders look like, what it looks like to have a truly Christ-centered life in the real world. The first thing we see in this passage is that Timothy, Timothy is others-focused. In other words, his, his most valuable quality, according to Paul, is that he seeks the interests of others. You see in verse 20, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too might be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You see, even in Paul's day, even way back when New Testament church, right, in its infancy, even in Paul's day, there are those who minister for the wrong reasons, with bad motivations, with their own interests at heart. There are people who minister like this. As a matter of fact, Paul talked about them in in chapter 1, remember? talks about the people who he says, yeah, it's great. Christ is proclaimed, but they're ministering for their own sake. They're ministering with bad motives. They're hurting me by, my ministry, by their ministry. They're actually seeking to compete with my ministry and push me out. And hey, Jesus is getting proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. But I recognize that their motives are impure. There's a great temptation, not just in Paul's day, but in ours, to minister for our own interests. This is not just a, a pastor's temptation. Right? There are plenty of places in the church that we can serve in an interest in our minds. We tell, it, we tell ourselves it's for the church, but what it's really for is to get some acclaim, to get some credit, to have a place where we feel important or in power or in control. Right? This is not a temptation that's unique to pastors. It's one that we all have to look out for as people who serve in the church. And yet, it is a special temptation for leaders. For church leaders, and perhaps many of you, some of you in this room, have been wounded by at least one of them. If you spend enough time in church, it's actually likely you'll be wounded by um, either a, a leader or um, or a church member. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, I would expect, carry with us some kind of church hurt, right? Carry with us some kind of baggage that we've experienced in the life of the church by people who weren't ministering like Timothy for the interest of Jesus, but are ministering out of our own interests, right? The most prominent example right now, um, and the one that I'm, I'm most grieved over, is um, with every new story, it seems like every week, that comes out about sexual abuse in the context of the church. And it seems like every week we have to uh, be freshly grieved and, and angered at the stories that are continuing to, to come out as um, things are uncovered, right? As God is continuing to purge, as God is continuing to refine our churches and, and put this out of our midst. It's a, it's a tragic thing. It's a hurtful thing. It's one that I actually have to say that I am grateful for those who are courageously speaking out, right? For those who are courageously coming um, and for the sake of others telling their own stories. It takes great courage and great, not interest of self, right? But interest of others, just like Timothy here. I would hope that God will continue to give justice, and I hope that our churches continue to come places of, of safety as we care for those who have been victimized in this way, as we care for those who have been hurt and wounded by those who use the position of power not for the interest of Christ, 
but for the interest of themselves. In a less weighty but also discouraging way are the stories of people who have simply abandoned Christianity because they've been hurt by someone who's hypocritical or someone who's domineering or someone who, quite frankly, is just plain graceless with their manner, right? Again, there's, there's all kinds of ways that life, as we enter into the church, right? Anytime we get a group of sinners together, this is going to happen, but especially in the church where the things of eternity hang in the balance, where the things of the, the deepest parts of our soul are being not only uncovered, but ministered to and sanctified and refined. We could expect all kinds of baggage and wounds to, to crop up as sinful people seek to love and minister to one another. And yet, and yet, despite all of its brokenness and baggage, I do still believe in the church. And despite all of its brokenness and baggage, despite having just said in chapter 1, right, that there are all these people ministering not for Christ's needs but for their own needs, Paul here acknowledged that he still believes in the church because there are, through every season, every time, still men like Timothy. There is hope for the church, which Jesus calls his bride. Jesus calls his beloved. Jesus is constantly purging us of evil and refining us with the good, but he has not given up on the church, and neither is Paul, and neither have I. Brothers and sisters, there is hope, not just for Grace Church, there is hope for the church in America and the church around the world because Jesus has built it. On this rock, Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell... And the gates of abuse and the gates of hypocrites, none of these things will prevail against Jesus' church because God is gracious to give faithful men and women who will continue to redeem, refine, and minister faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully with Jesus' interests at heart. So Paul here reminds us that despite our church hurt, Jesus is gracious to give these men and women. So do not, brothers and sisters, do not become so cynical by the unfaithful, that you miss the gift of the faithful. Do not become so cynical in seeing the unfaithful that you miss the gift of the faithful in your midst. Be grateful for the Timothys in our church. You see, Timothy is not like them. Timothy is seeking the interests of Jesus. Do you think this way about the church? Do you make sacrifices to your own personal happiness and well-being? Are there things in your life that might be personally good for you, but you choose to occasionally give up or you choose to occasionally leave behind because that wouldn't be good for the church? Can you think of a time when uh, there was something important going on in the life of the church and maybe there was a conflict in your personal life and you chose instead to elevate the interest of others over the interests of yourself? If those are difficult, if examples of that are difficult for us to think of, it, it may be time to think, are we more in the mold of Timothy? Or are we ourselves more in the mold of those leaders that Paul mentions in chapter 1, who we minister when it's convenient and when it might give us some acclaim or acknowledgement, but when it comes to simply coming in here on behalf of others, doing what needs to be done, it's a little bit harder to find us, right? Paul is commending this type of life to the Christian church in Philippi. And man, this is different than most of our qualifications for church leadership, isn't it? I, it's surprising to me that Paul doesn't say, I wish I could send Timothy to you because he is a beast in the pulpit. He's going to rock the pulpit, right? Man, he's, he's funny and he's charismatic and he's pretty good looking and none of the things that your current preacher is um, he's all those so I'm just I'm holding to this verse right if I can just be humble I got something going for me right um, and he, he also doesn't say I wish I could send him to you because he's such a visionary leader right he's really going to solve all these little squabbles you've got because he can see five years down the road and he can write all the little you know org charts down he's going to be this great visionary leader all those things are good we I'm, I'm not I think it's important for pastors to be able to preach. It's important for pastors to be able to cast a vision and administrate that vision to fulfillment. But that's not what Paul highlights in Philippians. He says, man, I really wish I could send Timothy to you. Of all the people I could pick to send to you, all the disciples, I've got, I've got apostles, right? I could send you Luke, I could send you these guys, but I really want to send Timothy to you. Because I know, based on his proven mettle, 
I know that he'll look out for your interests and not his own. I know that he'll be there not for his own acclaim, but for yours. I know that he's interested not in his own joy, but for your joy. I know that Timothy will look out for you. You see, Timothy is Paul's most valuable disciple because he has proven his mettle in his other's focused labor up until this point. Paul has seen him up close. He knows his worth. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 will challenge the way most of us think of ministry and, and service in the church. Jesus here is getting at some of what Paul is commending in Timothy. Matthew 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So this passage is is primarily about giving, right? But I think there's a clear implication in not just giving our money, but in giving our, our time and our gifts to the church. And what Jesus is saying here is he's calling us to pursue obscurity. He's saying if you want humility, if you want to know what it really is to be humble, pursue obscurity. And what I mean by that is find something where no one is going to know you're doing it and keep doing it. And you're not going to get a high five, right? You're not going to get a gift card. You're not going to get anything up front in the church. These things are good and deserved and more. But what Jesus is saying here is find a place, if you really want to be humble, if you want the kind of life that Timothy's leading, if you want to know what it is to do that, find a place where you can serve and know going in. You're not going to get any credit. Nobody's going to blow a trumpet for you on your way in to stack some chairs. Right? Nobody's going to give you a certificate of completion. But it's going to be done. And in that, you will know that it's for the interest of others and for the interest of Christ and not for yourself. This is how we can train ourselves to pursue obscurity and find humility. Some of us need to discover a godly ambition, but others of us need obscurity. Whether it's stacking chairs or cooking dinner for your neighbor or teaching children's Sunday school or any other dozen labors, that will give you nothing in return other than an opportunity to love others and an opportunity to cultivate humility in yourself. Find your place where you can pursue obscurity, serve there, and know what it is to experience the joy that Timothy experiences. And finally, in this point, the last thing I would have to say here is there's a great encouragement here, I think as well, which is you can be encouraged that if you feel like you don't have the gifts of the person sitting next to you. You feel like, you know what, I I don't have the the teaching gifts. I'm not good in front of people. Uh, I don't have the tech gifts. I don't know how to do all that with computers. I don't have a good voice to sing. I don't really know what God would have me to do at Grace Church. I don't really know how I would fit in. I don't know how to contribute to the body. Well, first of all, there's, there's probably, not probably, there is a gift God has given you that you can use. But if there's not, let's say there's not, Perhaps your gift is to show the rest of us what it means to live on behalf of others, to pursue not your own interests but the interests of others. If you can do nothing else, you can be humble. So pursue humility. Be the most humble person in the room. Find all the jobs that get no credit at all and go and do them. Be our Timothy. If you've got no other skills, no other credentials, you've got the skills to be Timothy, to pursue the interests of others over yourself. You can do that. Be encouraged, brother and sister. You might not have the gifts, but you can pursue humility. So let's go back to Philippians, back to chapter 2. The second thing we see in the life of Timothy is simply disciple-making at its finest. The second thing we see is not that is that Timothy is not just a picture for Paul, right? He's not just some kind of example, some kind of living portrait that Paul is cultivating for the church. In other words, Timothy is not a theory to Paul. He's not a project for Paul. What does Paul call him? He says, I have no one like him in verse 20 who will be concerned for your welfare, for they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. 
instead. But, in contrast, you know Timothy's proven worth. How do you know this? How do I know this? How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You see, what Paul says is, I would love to send Timothy to you. Right? He is... He would be the best candidate to send to you right now, but I can't. And the reason I can't is because I need him more than you do. I don't know why. Some commentators say Paul might have needed his testimony in the trial that he was awaiting, or he would need someone to continue to go and get food and bring it back to him. Um, There could be a dozen reasons why, but whatever it is, we see that his status as Paul's son in the faith demanded That he stay for a time. As much as Paul knew the Philippians could use Timothy's leadership and service, he says, I can't send him to you yet. I want to, and I hope to soon, but I can't yet because I need him even more than you do. Timothy's unique place as Paul's spiritual son demands that he remain with Paul. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 4 9, which is on your sheet, a little later when Paul is nearing his execution and he knows it's coming and he knows things are about to get heavy, he writes to Timothy and, and demands that he come. He says, please come soon. Come quickly. You see, even Paul, even Paul who would write to live as Christ and to die as gain. Even Paul who can do all things through Christ who strengthened him. Even Paul who counted everything as lost for the sake of Christ. Even courageous, bold, pioneer missionary Paul needed Timothy. He needed his spiritual son at his side when he was experiencing great trials and great tribulations. What makes you today think you can faithfully walk through the Christian life alone? What makes you think you don't need spiritual sons and spiritual fathers, spiritual daughters and spiritual mothers, spiritual siblings surrounding you who you share life with in a way that you can see their proven worth? Not in some superficial way, but you can know that when everything goes in the air, you can call them and they will be rock solid with you. They know enough about you and your fate. They know enough about you and your trials. They know enough about you and your sin that they can be there as a support as you seek to go about the Great Commission. I think this is why stories like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and Stranger Things have such a resonance with us. Because we crave this, right? We crave this picture of companionship and community going together. We crave this idea that there is this great task before us. And this group of close friends that we're going to accomplish it with. We crave this idea of one great mission and one great group to to accomplish it together. And whatever story that plot fits into... That connects with our souls, doesn't it? I don't think that's coincidental. Because God has built us for this, right? He's given us the great task. He's given us the great commission to make disciples of all the nations. And He's given us the great community, the great companions to embark on the journey with. And like any family, you need siblings. But you also need parents and, and children, right? So a lot of us... We, we have spiritual siblings. We have people who are in the same place as we are in life and faith and godliness. And it's more comfortable to be around them because, well, they're like us, right? And yet, what Paul has here is not just a spiritual sibling, but he calls him a spiritual son. That is, someone who he is pouring his life into, who he is mentoring and growing and developing. So we need people. We need a a Timothy, right, who is a spiritual son in the faith, who we can call, who we can write to and say, I need you here. We also, Timothy needed Paul, right? Timothy would have been nowhere without a Paul, without someone who is continually to pour out his life into his spiritual son. So brothers and sisters, find someone older than you in the faith. Maybe they're not older than you in age, but they they are older than you in faith. Find someone younger than you in the faith. Who you can, if they're older, learn from. If they are younger, who you can teach and instruct. You see, Timothy learned from Paul. I love love the way you say it. Did you notice this? You expect him to say, as he says he's a spiritual son in verse 22. As a son with a father, he has served me. Right? That's what sons do to fathers, right? 
sons serve fathers. But what does he say? He says, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You see, Timothy learned from Paul and observed Paul, not by serving Paul, but by serving with Paul for the sake of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the word here is a slave. So they were both co-slaves for Christ. So Timothy learned from Paul, right? So there is a mentorship. And yet there is an astounding equality as they walk alongside each other. And Timothy learned from Paul by doing, right? So Paul didn't call Timothy in and show him a PowerPoint on what it was going to be like to be a pastor, right? Paul didn't have a seminar or a conference, and Timothy came and attended it, and then he got a little, you know, thing to hang on the wall that said, completed my pastor certification. How did he learn what it was like to be a missionary and church planner and pastor? Well, he went with Paul. And he got, uh, he cared for Paul in prison. He went through all the trials Paul went through. He watched as Paul got himself in and out of some tricky circumstances, both with churches and with governments and everything else. And he learned as he observed and watched and interacted and engaged. This is what it is to truly make disciples. Disciples can't be made simply in rows in a room. Disciples have to be made as we walk and serve as slaves of Jesus together. They have to be seen and reflected and interacted with. This is how um, Al taught me evangelism many years ago. He didn't give me a book to read and write a report on it. He said, I go to campus every Tuesday and share the gospel. I want you to come with me. Okay? So I show up and we're in the big dining hall. There's like a Chick-fil-A and a burrito place and all this stuff. And he said, look for people who are sitting by themselves. Uh, over here? All right, let's go. And a guy just pulls up a chair and sits down. Hi, I'm Al. <laughs> I'm like, what are we doing? What's going on here? And I like awkwardly like sit down. I'm like, are we? Okay, so we're sitting. Cool. Um, and he, he just starts. He's, he goes at it, man. He's like, what are you studying? You know, biology. Ah, huh, I like biology. What do you think about Jesus? Man, whoa. Everything about contextualization is just going out the window here. But it worked. It worked for him. Right? He's this, he's this 65-year-old guy with a traveler's cap walking around the college cafeteria. He's intriguing. The, the college students are like, and all of a sudden they're, they're answering his questions. I, hardly anyone pushed us away. And it, it made me find out that my worst-case scenario as I watched of like everybody thinking you're really weird and goofy and, you know, and just blowing you off. Like that happened a couple times. And he was like, have a nice day. And we got up and walked off. And I was like, that's the worst-case scenario. Okay, all right, we can do that. And so I watched him, and I listened to him share the gospel. And I got to know what it was to ask good questions of people. I started picking up on some of the questions. And then one day, as we're sitting there, he turns over and he says, Brandon, why don't you share what God did in your life? Oh, I'm talking now. Okay. Uh, And here we go. And then by the end of the semester, I was doing most of the talking, and then Al would jump in every once in a while and say, well, actually, that was a dumb thing to say. But what he meant to say was this. And he would correct me. And then, you know, two semesters later, I've got some guys who I'm teaching how to do this, right? And what I didn't realize at the time is he was using a very intentional form of, of mentorship, right? Where he was, he was using the, the model of I do and you watch, which is how you begin, right? I'm going to do it, and then you're going to watch me do it. Then we'll move to the next stage of I do and you help, where I'll continue to do it, but you can help me and start to kind of get your, get your feet wet a little bit, get your hands dirty and see what it is. And then we move to you do and I help. I'm going to watch you, and then we're going to kind of reflect on what went well and what didn't. And then you do, and someone else watches. So that's the end goal, right, in making a disciple is, all right, this, you see what we're doing now? All right, now you go find somebody to do it with. You ready? Right, that's the goal. That's the end point of discipleship is someone is released to go and make disciples themselves. And so whatever your form of discipleship is, whether it's reading the Bible one-to-one together, like we talked a couple weeks ago, right? So the goal there is not that you guys sit around and read the Bible together for the next 30 years by yourselves. The goal is that you teach someone how to read the Bible, and then they go and find someone to read the Bible with, right? Or maybe it's going through a book, and you're going to go through this book, and then you say, all right, here's the book. Go do what I did. But you see how that works where you do, I do, and you watch, right? Then I do, and you help, and then you do. Right? I want to hear what you have to say. I'll help. I'll critique. I'll help you think through some things. But then you're released. Right? This is discipleship. This is what Jesus did with his disciples. 
This is what Paul does with Timothy. This is what we're called to do with one another. So many of us just need to get started on that observation stage, right, of I do and you watch. So let me teach you how to do this in one simple step. Invite somebody over for dinner. If you want somebody to watch you or if you want to watch someone else, see how they eat dinner with their family. See how they pray over the meal. See how they ask their their wife, their spouse, um, maybe their children or their siblings, whatever it is. See kind of questions they ask over the dinner table. Learn what it is to to interact with your family in a gospel-centered way. Perhaps even if you um, really want to learn, invite an unbeliever over and then invite someone over. And see how they interact with the unbeliever. See what ways they use to get to the gospel. See how they minister to them. Simply invite someone over for dinner is step number one in learning how to watch and observe. And then maybe you can go to the next step, but that's a good first step. You say, well, okay, how, how do I know who to do that with? I don't, I, there's like 150 people in here, or maybe more than that. I don't know. Um, Paul knew Timothy's worth because he had served alongside him. And so the question before us is, who is God calling you to serve alongside? And the simple way you can figure that out is, first, begin praying, right? Pray about it today. Pray for God to open your eyes to see someone who is either going to be a spiritual mother or father or a spiritual son or daughter, depending on where you're at in your discipleship, right? Or maybe both. Maybe you need a father, mother, or a son or daughter, right? Depending on where you're at. And you do both at the same time and learn from each of them. So begin to pray, begin to look, all right? So have your eyes open as you walk into church. Don't just walk in and find your seat and look up and see the words and, you know, dart out before the invitation's done and get in your car and go eat chicken and come back next week and do it all over again. Begin to look. Have your eyes open to people in this room who are ready who are faithful and available and teachable. And then finally, the last step is ask for one. So don't pray and look for the next three years and just go, I don't know, I guess God just doesn't want me to do this thing. Right? No, then you ask for one. Or you can ask for help. They don't call me a discipleship pastor for nothing. So um, you could ask me and I'll help you find someone. I'd love to do that. But don't get discouraged. I knew a lady once who... Uh, she shared when she was in college, she invited, she asked six ladies to be her mentor before someone said yes. Six. I'm like, man, after like the third, I would think I was like leprous and give up, you know? Like, I'm, I'm not good with rejection like that. But she was diligent because she knew she needed it. And she knew that God had called her to it. And so she knew that all the no's were leading to a yes because she knew that this was God's will. This is what God had called her to do. And she knew she needed it. So she was diligent. So we want disciples. We want multiplying disciples. And the goal is for each of us, us, our spiritual sons, our spiritual fathers, to have missional courage, which we see in Epaphroditus. So Paul doesn't just have one, right? He doesn't just have Timothy, and that's his one, and he's ready to go. If that's you, that's fine. Not all of us are Paul. Jesus had 12. Paul had at least two, probably more than that. But Paul has Timothy here and... Epaphroditus, who are his disciples. You see this clearly in the way he describes Epaphroditus. He says uh, in verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, listen to these terms of affection, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. You notice those three things he calls him, his brother and his fellow worker and his fellow soldier. So you see a kinship there with his brother. And he works alongside him as a worker. And then that, I love that term, fellow soldier, where they're on a common mission together. Right? So when you, it's amazing how when you have a common mission, you can get over a lot of other stuff, a lot of other baggage, a lot of other differences. And, uh, in high school, I played football next to a guy. I was the center, and he was a guard, and his name was Lanny, Lanny Harrison. And uh, Lanny liked uh, bro country and overalls, and he led mostly by yelling at people. And at the time, I liked Jack Johnson and polo shirts and led mostly by example and maybe a conversation on the sidelines with someone. And yet, we were the, the two leaders of our unit. Of the, of the offensive line unit. And when it came game time, 
And there was a 300-pound guy lined up next to us, and we had to double-team him to open up the hole for the running back. All of a sudden, his affinity for a Florida Georgia line did not mean much anymore, right? All of a sudden, his difference in clothing choice and the way he'd annoyed me at practice three days ago by screaming at everybody, that didn't matter much because we had to get this guy out of the way. And so Lanny was standing beside me, and at the time, Lanny was my brother. Why? Not because we had a lot in common, not because we particularly liked each other, although I, I do like Lanny now, um, but because we had the same goal in mind, because we had a common mission that was bigger than either one of us. And if we didn't move that guy out of the way, the running back was going to chew both of us out, right? And so we did. We worked together. You see, instead of fretting over community and building community, as important as that is, instead, we might focus together on the people groups yet to be reached. We might focus together on the churches yet to be planted. We might focus together on the neighbors yet to be invited to our life group. And as we move on mission toward those areas, the community will happen, right? The unity will happen because we are both focused on the same goal of Jesus' interests instead of our own. You see, mission drives community insofar as we pursue the mission of God together. We will find the community that we crave. Epaphroditus had found it. Paul tells us in verse 29, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus had that single-mindedness that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Epaphroditus is a living testimony of that verse that Paul gave us. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul describes how he became ill. And instead of giving up and turning around and going home, he pursued his mission. He was commissioned from the church at Philippi to go and minister to Paul. Became ill on the way and still made his way to Paul. And as he arrived to Paul, he was near to death. But he was risking his life for the sake of the gospel's advancement and Paul's good. Paul sees his courage. And he says, honor that courage. Honor that man. Here's another example. Timothy is interested not in himself, but in Jesus, in his interest. Epaphroditus is interested not in his own health, but in the mission of Christ. Jesus' gospel has driven Epaphroditus to a courageous ministry. And even in his illness, did you see it above? He's still concerned for who? Did you see it in verse 27? Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon... Sorrow, sorry, verse 26. That's a good verse too. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. All right, so I get a common cold, and my wife will tell you that I'm laid up in bed whining for like three weeks. Like, oh, my nose hurts, my head hurts. Right, it's, it's all about me, right? I'm sick. And yet Epaphroditus, he's sick near to death. And as he's on his deathbed, potentially, what's he worried about? Oh, man, they're probably really worried about me over in Philippi. I hope they're okay. Could you make sure that they know that, that I'm going to be okay? He's worried about them worrying about him. He's worried about their anxiety over his illness. What could possibly drive such an others-focused ministry? We'll see in just a moment. But what we see here is that ministry that costs nothing is worth nothing. Ministry that costs nothing is worth nothing. So brothers and sisters, embrace the risk of discipleship. Embrace the risk of asking someone and potentially getting rejected. Embrace the risk of having awkward conversations about your own life. Embrace the risk of going and using your resources to send others to people who are unreached. Embrace the risk of losing people for the sake of more churches being planted and multiplied among us. Embrace the risk because ministry that costs nothing is worth nothing. And yet, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So as we wrap up, these faithful servants remind us of Jesus' kindness and grace. Even unfaithful servants remind us that no man or woman is meant to be our Savior. So in a faithful servant like Timothy and Epaphroditus, we see Jesus' kindness in giving us a servant that's reflecting his love for the body and for people. 
and in unfaithful servants and people who fail to meet these standards. In those people in the earlier chapter that Paul describes, people who are ministering not of their not of Christ's interest, but of their own interest, we're reminded that people cannot be our salvation. People will fall short. So I admit to you that as I studied this week, this uh, this passage was difficult for your pastor to prepare for. It, it's difficult for it was difficult for me to write some of these words because as I'm studying, as I'm uh, preaching the the text to myself, what I'm constantly reminded of is the the clouded motivations and, and interests in my own life and ministry. What is cropping up in in my heart is. Um, conviction over the messy and imperfect ways that I've discipled and, and failed to disciple people well. Um, even opportunities for gospel courage and um, these moments in which uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain are these great opportunities to step in. And instead, what gets replaced with courage is passivity and cowardice and stepping back from the podium in ways that Epaphroditus and, and Paul here did not. And so as I saw this and, and was convicted by this, I, I love Paul. Paul is uh, Paul's great. But I was reminded more so of, of Peter. Um, and I was drawn to the Apostle Peter and his life and, and ministry. The Lord um, encouraged and exhorted me in, in the life of, of Peter. Because as you remember, Peter wanted really badly to be commended by Jesus in the way that Paul is commending Timothy and Epaphroditus here, right? Peter craved the type of commendation and the type of pat on the back from the Lord that Paul is giving to his disciples. What did Peter say when Jesus said, I'm going to be betrayed? Not by me. I don't know about these guys, these other 11, but this guy right here is going to stand through it, man. After swearing up and down that his courage was full, his motives were pure, what did Peter do? He cowered, right? In Jesus' greatest moment of need, as, as Paul was in prison and needed his spiritual son, how much more so as Jesus went to be crucified and absorb the wrath of God for Peter's sin and for my sin and, and your sin, as he's ready to go to the cross and he needs these type of faithful companions, these type of brothers. Paul had Timothy, Peter had nobody. I'm sorry, Jesus had nobody because of Peter. Peter ran. Peter was no Timothy or Epaphroditus. Peter fled. Not only did Peter flee and hide, but he had an opportunity at least to vocally support, right? I mean, there's pretty low risk there. Okay, so he's not, gonna, he's not ready to go to the cross, but somebody asked him, hey, you're one of Jesus' disciples, right? Peter, at the very least, could stand beside Jesus in this small way, right? But what does he do? I don't, I don't know Jesus. Oh, well, you've got the accent. You sound just like the guy who was standing next to him a couple days ago. No, you got the wrong guy. I don't know what you're talking about. Peter's courage failed. Peter's motives were clouded. How many of you feel like Peter today? How many of you even... So next to Jesus, we all feel inadequate, right? Next to Jesus, none of us is pouring out ourselves in the way that Jesus did. But how many of us, even next to Timothy and Epaphroditus feel small. Even next to these men who we can't even pronounce their names still feel insignificant in the kingdom. And yet that was not the end of Peter's story, was it? We see in John chapter 21, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He walked out of the grave on the third day. And before he ascended into heaven, he had a couple of words for his disciple, Peter. He went and found him. And you remember Peter and his joy gets out of the boat, swims, and they're cooking some fish on the shore. But as you read the passage, you can just feel the, the awkwardness hanging heavily in the air. Like Peter's like, are we going to talk about me running away and then denying him? Maybe he forgot. I mean, this fish is really good. Good seasoning, Jesus. He's waiting. And what does Jesus do? He asks him a simple question. You see, days ago, Jesus had emptied himself. He had washed Peter's feet, and as he hung on the cross, he had washed his soul. 
as well. All of his denials, all of his selfishness, all of these were washed away as Jesus hung in Peter's place. And the same question that he asked Peter and the same response that he gives Peter, I think, is applicable for us today. He asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he asked him three times, and his response is the same each time. He says, if you love me, then feed my sheep. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would um, continue to help us to see the Savior who, Lord, emptied himself. Lord, in ways that we never could, we could not die for our own sins, much less others. Or we could not reconcile ourselves back to you. And yet Jesus did. And so, Lord, we pray that as you have brought us back to you, and Lord, as you've entrusted us with the task of making disciples who, um, who love you, who know you, who obey you, we pray that you would stir in us a hunger to see the task accomplished. Lord, to see disciples made in our church, to see disciples made around the world. Lord, we ask that as we do this, that um, as we do it imperfectly, Lord, that we would lean heavily on your grace knowing that it's not in our service that we find um, our true selves. It's not in our service that we find who we are. But you have called us your sons and daughters. You have reconciled us and brought us back to God, just as you brought Peter back in all of his imperfection. And Lord, just as you, you've used Peter in powerful ways for the sake of your kingdom, I pray that you will use each person here. Lord, the one who feels um, impressive, Lord, for the one here who feels as though uh, this thing could not work without them, I ask that you would humble them. Lord, that you would move them to be more like Timothy, to serve not for their own interest or acclaim, but to serve for others. Lord, for the one here who, Lord, feels too small, Lord, feels as though, um, like Peter, they failed in too many ways, I ask that the redemption of Jesus would be made clear. Lord, that you use the weak things to shame the strong. So we pray that you would continue to do that. And Father, for the one who does not know what it is even to to serve you, Lord, I pray that you would awaken their heart, that they, like Peter, would respond in faith, seeing that um, you do um, pour out your love and your grace. Father, help us all to respond to the gospel of Jesus this morning. It's near me pray. Amen.